Now, back to Job 19. Anything else I forgot, we're just going to have to keep moving. Um, Job 19, just to catch us up to where we are, this is his fifth response. Now, this is in the middle of the second round of arguments. Now, if you remember, we covered essentially the first 11 chapters of Job. So we covered the first entire argument that he had with his three friends. And if you remember from where he started on the trash heap, he kind of came out guns blazing at God. He said, why didn't, why'd you let me live? Why didn't you kill me straight away? Uh, why didn't you just, just, just take care of it before I was ever allowed to live and to suffer? And that caused his friends to respond and say, what are you, what are you saying? Instead of questioning God, what you need to do is repent for whatever it is you've done because there's only two possibilities. Either you're righteous and God blesses you, or you have sinned and he makes you suffer. There is no other explanation for suffering in a retribution principle theology or a, an unbiblical theology or an unlivable theology such as theirs. And so they are operating based on things that they think they know. And if you remember, each of them have a reason for why they believe the retribution principle. Remember, Eliphaz starts off by doing what many of us may have done, and you may have had this done to you. He says, I had a spiritual experience. I was communicated to by a spiritual being. And if you remember, he even confesses, I really didn't see him all that well, and I really didn't hear him all that well, but what I did hear, I want to tell you. Well, that's kind of odd that he didn't even get the whole thing, and somehow, some way, it's supposed to be authoritative. And remember, he also appealed to his experience because he's probably the oldest of the three, the more seasoned, and he talked about how he looked at creation and could see that the retribution principle was, in fact, true. And Job wrestled with what he had to say. And, and then his next friend, Bildad, came along and he said, listen, tradition says, the men of old whom you cannot question say that you are in fact guilty and that all you can do is repent and everything will be okay. You get to get all your stuff back. And remember how we talked about that if Job were to have done what his friends were asking him to do, he would have done exactly what Satan said he would do. That he only cared about God as long as he had all of the blessings and all of the stuff that comes from being with God. Now, lest we get too far into the ditch one way or the other, does God bless his people? He does. Why? Because they're good? No, because he loves them. Now, does obedience as Christians allow us to walk in a better newness of life than disobedience does? Yeah, it does. That's where all of this stuff starts to get kind of muddy is we, we want to have absolutes. Just give me the simple math. I want a God who is simple, not complex. I want a God who, who stays away as long as he is satisfied and satiated with my religious activities and doesn't come near because he scares me, because he's bigger than me, because he's the creator and I'm the created. And Job even has some of that in his own theology. He even argues from the position of the retribution principle. Let's not miss that. He says, I should be being blessed because I am righteous. I have done all that God would be satisfied with. 
So I am suffering and it is unjust. But interestingly, what Job is most concerned with is not the stuff. Remember, what is he most concerned with? What did we learn from Job 11 or Job 9 and 10? He's most concerned with the presence of the Lord. That's the thing that he misses the most. If you were to read all of Job's uh, arguments, you will not find him say that he wishes that he just could get his stuff back. In fact, next week we're going to look at Job's closing argument. And what he's going to tell us is that what he misses the most is the joy that he had in walking with the Lord as a friend instead of the adversary and enemy that he feels like he has become. And then the last friend, Zophar, comes in with this wisdom and philosophy and he says, God cannot be known, and I know that. I know that God cannot be known. And so, Job, you just need to know that. You need to repent. You need to figure out whatever it is that you've done, and you need to give it up and be done with it. You need to shut up. Remember, he calls him a windbag, and he tells him to shut up because he's just tired of hearing his mouth. But this goes on, right? And so we, there's no need for us to read the friend's second and third tier of arguments because their argument literally doesn't change, but it grows in invective. They just get meaner. In fact, there's going to come a point where Eliphaz actually accuses Job of mistreating the poor even though he hasn't seen him do it. Now tell me this, which of the commandments does Eliphaz break got to be at least one Old Testament scholar in here. False witness. He bore false witness against Job. Now, what does that mean has got to now happen for Eliphaz in this retribution theology of his? He has sinned. What now must he endure? Suffering and judgment. In fact, in Job 19, he's going to warn his friends. He's going to say to them, the very sword that you have drawn against me because of the way that you are behaving is going to be drawn against you and you better be careful. And so that brings us up to this point where Job, Job is actually, um, his arguments do progress and change. There's a little bit of vacillation within his argument that seem, he seems to go back and forth, but what you'll notice is he keeps progressing and he's, losing, he's recognizing, I am losing everything I could possibly have. And the only thing I have left, the only hope that I have in this world is if there is a redeemer who will stand atop the trash heap with me and declare me righteous before I die. Would that we could progress to so grand and beautiful a theology. Let's turn to the text as we'll begin with Job 1 through 6. And as we do, I want to open with a question that'll help frame us a bit. <laughs> if any of you have ever endured prolonged suffering, and I know some of you have, and it, it, that would be anything that's over, I, I think I call prolonged suffering greater than an hour. Uh, but being a man, that's probably too short. Maybe others of you would say a week, a month, or some lengthier period of time. But I know many of you have endured prolonged suffering. And the question that I have is, is what, what was it that brought you the most comfort in the midst of that prolonged suffering? What actually gave you any sort of hope that there could be anything at all, even if it sounded like resignation theology, meaning... I mean, if, there's, if God ain't good, I don't know. 
That's still a beautiful and wonderful confession, you understand? It doesn't sound terribly convincing, and the faith seems shaky and weak, but remember, when you are weak, what is God? Strong. And so even in that, there's a good confession, and I, I know that I have said that. I didn't say it very convincingly sometimes, but I knew that if God is not good, if he is ultimately not sovereign, I don't have any hope at all in a world where all things else are equal. And so what brought you comfort? What, how have you seen others who have endured prolonged suffering? How have they been able to find comfort or joy or peace in the middle of that prolonged suffering? Was it, was it the hope that they had in the next candidate coming in in the presidential cycle? Was it the hope that they had uh, because of the amazing things that get said on Facebook on a regular basis? Was it the hope that they had in, in anything other than something substantive? Oftentimes what you will find is it is that broken, resigned confession that God, if he be not good, I don't know what else I have. And somehow we're able to continue on, even though we feel like it ain't pretty. We just don't have, as Westerners, we don't have a rubric for messiness. We don't have a rubric for wrestling through stuff and asking kind of big and deep and hard questions. We don't have a rubric that gives people room to doubt and struggle and wrestle and ask, is God good? Part of our problem is we want to know immediately, how do you answer a question like that? How do you finally figure out that God is good? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, there will be no question. But between the now and the not yet, we are asking in some way, shape, or form, God, are you good? And sometimes we know it better than others, right? Sometimes we taste of God's goodness and it's amazing. But then we're quickly reminded of what some other people are going through. The other night when I was going to sleep, I don't know why, I thought about what if I were a Syrian Christian tonight? As I lay down in lovely Ackworth, Georgia, in my nice bed with the fan blowing because I can't stand to be hot, I won't tolerate it. Even if it gives my wife pneumonia, I love her, but some, you gotta draw the line somewhere. As I was in my great comfort, what if I were laying down that night a Syrian Christian? What would it look like? What would my questions be? Now, I'm not goofy enough to get on an airplane and go, I'm gonna go, I can't tolerate being safe and secure. No, I gave thanks to God for what I have and I prayed for the Syrian Christians that they would at some point see God's goodness as their suffering would abate. And so I, I couldn't reconcile it all other than to give thanks and pray. And sometimes that's the most honest thing we can do, isn't it? So often being Western, we want some sort of hard answer about this grand, mysterious, invisible, imminent, and transcendent being. That's tough, other than what he's offered us. And so Job is wrestling to the end of that, and he's getting to the part that God is going to say, 
Job has spoken right of me. But he will not speak right of the Lord until he has come to the end of all that he knows. And we with him, we're going to hear from Elihu in a couple of weeks. Elihu represents the end of all the good wisdom that humans have. And even at the end of that, God still has to speak. And so, listen to what Christopher J.H. Wright, who is a a scholar who wrote a commentary on on Lamentations. This is what he says, and I think it's a good quote for us this morning. The voice of protest firmly believes that the judge of all the earth will do right, but longs for reassurance that ultimately he will indeed do so unmistakably and visibly. In the meantime, the struggle goes on, and the protesting questions remain. That is the essence of biblical lament. It is faith struggling with vertigo over the chasm between what it knows to be true about God and the realities of what it sees or experiences in a fallen world. See, the Lord has given us the language of lament. And like I said, we in the West, and if you read blogs of any kind or look at anything about worship, this conversation has been going on. This, for some of you, is a struggle with some of our song selection here as of late. It just feels dour and heavy and, I mean, come on, can't we just do happy day once? Not yet. We're not there yet. And we probably won't do happy day at all, to be honest with you. But I get it. I understand. And it's not, we're not doing lamentations after, I'm not going to finish you guys off. Like Job, lamentations for Advent. We'll come up for air, I promise, for a while. We'll stay out of the backwaters for a while. But we, needed it. we need to go here, don't we? So often we're afraid to deal with these kind of things and we, we can't grow if we don't, if we're not stretched. So as we enter into Job 19, let's read verses one through six. It says, then Job answered and said, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These 10 times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. So Job in Job 19 is talking to his friends. This is not a prayer that he's uttering unto God. He is speaking specifically to them. He uses Bildad's very words. Remember, Bildad said, how long will you go on blustering like a windbag? Would that you would just shut up. So Job turns it back on Bildad and says, how long will you break me in pieces with your words? How long will you reproach me? harming me, taking my suffering as an opportunity to elevate yourselves. That should trouble us that this is the way that it is perceived. Here a man is suffering and he feels like his friends, instead of praying with and for him, instead are questioning and challenging and calling for him to do something that he has not done. He even says, if I have sinned, It wasn't even against you. You can't even name it. So who are you to hold me in account? You are not God. 
And he's not suggesting that he hasn't done something wrong or that he's perfect. We need to keep that in view. Nowhere has Job said, I am a perfect man. What he has said is I'm a righteous man. And what that means is that when he does mess up, that he seeks to repent and make things right because he cares about his relationship with the Lord, his God. So Job is not arguing for perfection. But what he is saying is, look, if I have done something, it's between me and God. I haven't done anything against you that I owe you anything. And he even says, you've done this to me 10 times. Now, they haven't had 10 arguments thus far. It's not about the exactness of the number, what 10 represents. Is he saying, your argument against me has been exhausted. There's nothing more for you to say to me based on what you've already said. You've said more than enough and you have hurt me, you have wounded me. How often are we guilty of very much the same thing? That when we see someone suffering, instead of being willing to abide and to pray and to live and exist in their grief, walk with them as they suffer, we just wanna provide answers. We wanna tidy this thing up, right? How long should this go on? You got to, we're Americans. We got we move on from all kind of stuff. We move on from stuff as fast as we can because we don't want to really deal with it. We don't actually want to resolve it. We just want to keep moving. This is what we do. It's what we're good at, right? Because it means that we don't actually have to come to terms with anything. See, Job is unwilling to let it go. He wants to come to terms with how can the God that I thought I knew, who is good and sovereign, allow an innocent man to suffer? That question he doggedly refuses to let go of. And we ought to as well. Just as we learn from Habakkuk, what the Lord desires is people who have eyes to see the world as it really is instead of with these rose-colored Pollyanna glasses that we would be able to see the things that are broken and wrong and say, Lord, we know that you are good. We know that you are sovereign. Now, how would you use your church to help to reconcile what ought not be so? Instead, we are far more concerned with lots and lots of other things, primarily our comfort. Let me illustrate. At the end of most worship services, what's your first thought? What, what are you most concerned with? Well, if you're honest, how you felt. How did it make me feel? How did the songs move me? Now, that's, that's not a bad thing, but it's not the primary thing. The better question that we ought to ask of every worship service, and we try to do this on Monday when Josh and I get back together, is were we faithful to the word, and did we glorify the Lord our God? by being faithful to the word? Did we do what was true, what we felt led to do? And that is the main rubric by which we should assess each and every worship service that we engage in. See, because if we go based on your feelings, I mean, some of you are pretty excited. And I didn't lose a bet. That's not why I'm wearing this orange shirt, by the way. I'm wearing it in solidarity with my brothers who have suffered for so long at the hands of the Tennessee Vols only to finally, at long last, have victory. I'm a Carolina Tar Heel, so I'm up for grabs come football season. Now, they're feeling pretty good this morning. Some of you are not feeling so good, Chris Byerly. 
And that's not what it's about, is it? Some of you could have eaten Chinese food last night with way too much MSG. Some of you could have stayed up too late. Some of you could have gotten up too late. Some of you could have gotten into some sort of argument with your children. Some of you could have gotten into an argument with your spouse. Some of you, some of you, there's all kind of factors that affect how you do what you do here in worship. And most admittedly put very little effort into actually preparing to come to worship. I'm not indicting you. I just want you to recognize that we should be more concerned with the bigger question, which is, was God glorified and how does this shape and transform us to be able to look at the world, to be able to see the world as God would have us to see it and be the instruments, the hands and the feet to actually see something change in this world so God would be glorified not just here, but out there. Because there's plenty to do out there. And so Job is saying, I will not relent. I will not shut up and falsely repent. I am willing to continue to fight. And so Gustavo Gutierrez speaks to this. He says, Job has now accused God of persecuting him. Remember what Job said. He said, you guys are messing with me, but it is God alone who has caught me in his net. He is the one doing this to me, by the way, and I want you to recognize that. Job has now accused God of persecuting him, but at the same time, he knows that God is just and does not want human beings to suffer. These are the two sides of the one God. This painful dialectical approach to God is one of the most profound messages of the book of Job. How do we live with a God that allows suffering of the innocent sometimes when we know that he is supposed to be just and good? How do we wrestle with that? How do we speak of God in that? How do we live in that? Job is teaching us. Let's look back at verses 7 through 22. Job continues. He says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled me up in in my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me when I rise. They talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Wow. Do you, you hear all that? He's saying, I, I, I cry out. 
and no one answers. No one is there to answer my, my plea because they've all forsaken me. Everyone I know has turned against me and it is God who has personally taken it from me. Notice how he kept saying he, he, his, and even speaks of God's hand. He is actually speaking against the theology of, of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He's saying he doesn't hide behind the mechanistic. He doesn't throw it into motion and step to the back of the universe and allow the retribution principle to play out. No, God has stepped down from his throne personally and ensured that I am destroyed. This God is known. And Job confesses he has lost everything. Everything. He even is a stench. His breath stinks to the wife of his youth. And so what does that tell you? He is the stench of death to all who know him. And he says, even though there is hardly anything left, I beg you, show me mercy. You are supposed to be my friends and yet you pursue me like God does because, because they're so uncomfortable with what the answer could be. They don't have a rubric for understanding what Job is going through. There's no easy and simple answer and so they're just seeking to reconcile it at any cost and that cost is Job. And Job says, I will not pay that cost for you. Notice how in verse nine he again turns Psalm 8, upside down. Psalm 8 says, what is man that you have crowned us with honor and glory? And he says, he has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He even speaks in some language referring to Psalm 1 when it talks about being a tree who's righteous. He's saying, I was that tree. I was planted by the stream and God has uprooted me stripping all hope that I would have based on my righteousness. He's saying, there is little left for me. And he says that he escapes by the skin of his teeth, and I know many of you may think that sounds like he's making it, but in the Hebrew, that's not what's happening. He is basically saying that there is little left to be ground down. There's little left to be taken away. And God is even being excessive. Who puts a siege ramp against a tent? Any of you know anything about uh, old school warfare? You put a siege ramp against a fortified position, a tent, you could just knock over. But what he's saying is this points to the excessiveness with which God is making me suffer. And yet you, my friends, pursue me just as he does instead of standing with me in the midst of this, wanting to know all the way to the end what is happening. Derek Thomas, um, who teaches at RTS in Atlanta and is in South Carolina, says this in his commentary on Job. He says, Job's problem is a common one. Whenever we do not see the whole plan, we, we tend to assume there is a fault with it. See, Job doesn't yet see the purpose for why everything is being stripped away. And think about how we do the same thing how in the world could we who are finite know the end from the beginning, by the way? We speak with such, and I'm guilty as all get out on this, of speaking with such grand authorities if I know what someone else is thinking. Have you ever thought about that? 
You, you know what goes on in your head, right? Is there anyone who flat-footed could accurately get exactly what you're thinking just by going, oh yeah, I've talked to you like once. Pfft, I don't know what you're thinking. I know exactly where you're coming from. No, you don't. Not even close. You're just guessing. You're just trying to put everybody into these little categories. And nobody really fits, by the way. You get right once in a great while. It's like winning the lottery. Suddenly you think you're Kenny Rogers the gambler or something. And so, so Job doesn't know God's plans. And we read, he even gave us Isaiah 55, right? It's not like God wasn't honest with us. He tells us, my ways, they're not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And yet we're like, yeah, 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 that's, okay, okay, fine. But, but, I've read the prayer of Jabez, and uh, I understand how this whole thing works. Just just simplify it, right? I really understand how all this works. No, we don't. We don't. And therefore, we must question. We must be willing to come to the Lord our God with the things that, that we don't understand, instead of trying to pretend like we know everything. I can prove this to you. If I were to get any of you into a classroom, and we did this with membership, by the way. We did these membership classes, and there'd be 15 or 20 people in there, and nobody would ask any questions. Nobody. Why? Nobody wants to look dumb. Nobody wants to seem like they don't know. Every kind of discipleship is the number of people increases, the amount of actual wrestling and getting something done goes down. Because nobody wants to be that guy or gal who doesn't know what baptism is or why we baptize infants or why we do what we do in the Lord's Supper. Why does he speak of it as the real presence of Christ? Is he Catholic? No. We're afraid. We're afraid to sound like we don't know. Or we were afraid because of the time, or whatever it may be, there's all these kind of inhibiting things. We're so afraid to be exposed. Well, guess what? We don't know. Except for what he tells us and what he gives us that is clear in his revelation. We don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I feel it every time somebody sends me an email or comes to me and says, hey, why does God do this? Oh, man. Uh, so what I've done, and I did this to Krista Sliman and to Mary Catherine Howe, I was like, well, I'm gonna give you some homework. Just stalling's all I'm doing. Read these, go look up these words and maybe you'll get so tangled up you won't get back to me, I don't know. That's not true, I didn't do that. I, I, Krista thought I was doing that. Um, but there are times where I, I can just tell you as a pastor, I, I see it in your eyes, you want so much for me to have some sort of answer. And I, Sometimes I don't. I want to, but I don't. I don't know how to answer some of your suffering. I don't want to cheapen it by coming up with something that actually is not gonna do anything for you, but just somehow, some way makes me feel better, makes me look better. I don't wanna get caught on the hook any more than you do. And yeah, I like to, I'd wanna tidy it up because we like to move on to things. But let's not do that. Let's be okay with wrestling. Let's be okay with abiding with one another. Let's be okay with maybe not knowing sometimes and recognizing that the answer may come in time or it may come in Christ, one of the two. But the Lord will answer. And it may not be the way we would like him to because remember, any of you who are familiar with Job, Job never, ever, ever is told why. Never. Never. 
So as we turn back to the text, we're gonna see that as Job has been stripped of everything, he utters this amazing confession. Look at the text, Job 23 through 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will he pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword for wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. So here Job cries out that he wishes that what he was going through would be, would be made into a permanent record. It was. The Lord answered his prayer, and we have Job's story written with better than an iron pen. It was written with the pen of the Holy Spirit so that we could benefit from what Job went through. And praise God, even despite all of its mystery, praise God that we have this written down. And then Job goes on to speak of knowing that his Redeemer lives. Now, we know more than likely, he is not talking about someone who is currently living. Why? What did he just spend his time saying, verses 7 through 22? Everyone I know has forsaken me. There is no one who understands what I am going through. No one. So it can't be his expectation that one of his friends or someone that he knows would come forward. Could it be someone that he doesn't yet know? Well, no, that's not likely either, which means that's Christ as well. It's not Christ he's referring to in terms of specifics, but it is Christ the shadow. So it's not someone who's living that he doesn't know because how would they know to be able to stand up and say, Job was a righteous man. Only someone who knows Job inside and out can stand as his redeemer. And this is a word that we see all throughout that is used as the kinsman redeemer. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Ruth, this is the same term. Job is referring to someone who knows him like family who will step in and make everything right. Who could it be? God alone. Only God can be the redeemer that Job speaks of here because it is God alone who knows him both inside and out, who did fashion him. Job has confessed that. Remember in chapter 10 when he says, you are the one who made me intricately. How can it be that you would tear me apart and unknow me? See, he's already confessed that God alone is the one who knows him intricately enough to actually be his redeemer. And so what he's saying is, I am clinging to the hope that the God that I knew to be just and that I knew to be good and that I knew to be sovereign will at long last be all of those things before I die. And the reason that we know he's not talking about resurrection is he keeps saying, I will see him with my eyes. He's already confessed that when he goes to the grave, there will be no more. That's his theology. That's the way he understands the grave. So he's speaking of something that will happen before he dies. 
And it's not just that the Redeemer would stand on the earth. The actual Hebrew word here is more referring to the ash heap on which he is currently residing. He is saying that the Redeemer will stand with him in the midst of his suffering and make all things right before he dies. That is what Job speaks of God that is right. Because God will show up in the whirlwind and stand with Job in the ash heap and declare him righteous. As he has already done from heaven as he talked to Satan, and Job doesn't yet know, and Job will never know in this life. So God actually answers the things that Job is crying out for. But not yet. And that's the tension, isn't it? Somebody asked me, hey, Job 19, that's, we're, we're close to the end, right? No, we're midway. There is a lot more that Job is going to wrestle with and that is going to cause him anguish and pain before the Redeemer shows up on the ash heap. We don't know how long it takes, but it's not now, it's not yet. For many of you, you're in the same place. You are crying out for the Redeemer to make right you who rests atop the trash heap, the trash heap of whatever it may be. And he is not yet answering. But we have many examples of people who have cried out and he has answered and it has been good. This is where it becomes critically important for us to hear from one another, for us to be in community with one another, to hear how God is moving and is good. It is a grand encouragement to us. I can tell you how many situations that uh, we, Susan and I, have been through and in where God has again and again shown himself to be faithful over years and years and years. One happened just recently for me. Um, it seemed as if, as I stood atop the trash heap five years ago, that there would never be peace again at my home or at my table. And as my son left under very difficult circumstances and there looked to be no way home, no reconciliation that I could broker or understand, and nor did I make it happen. Five years later, as Susan and I went to spend his birthday with him just a few weeks ago, he used a term that he hadn't used in five years. He called me his father. I didn't broker that, I can assure you. I didn't want to bow too low at times. I didn't want to be humbled. You see, because I'm a prideful man. And yet, five years later, the Lord answered the prayer and continues to unfold that. Now, why did it only take us five years and some it's gonna take, I don't, I don't know. But I can tell you this, I hated every minute of those five years. I hated every second of the cutoffness. I hated the powerlessness of feeling like there was nothing that I could do except make it worse. And yet the Lord was good and he answers. And I've seen others struggle. We had friends who struggled with infertility for years and years and years and years. And every Friday night, it's the only thing that we talked about. It was anguish and sorrow. And the Lord moved in their heart after some five or six or six, how many years? Six years to adopt 
three beautiful children. And the Lord gave them two more, naturally. Now, does everybody's story go that way? No, it doesn't. And I wish it did, but it ain't simple math. God is not that simple. He's far more complex, and he blesses each one differently because he loves us all in our nuanceness and our differences like the snowflakes that we are. And I wish that it were easy. But in some measure, because of how I have lived and seen, I'm glad it's not because it allows for us to praise him in ways that we would forget him in the simple math. And I just don't understand sometimes. Just like Job, and all I can cling to is that if God is not good, we have no hope. If the Redeemer doesn't live, if he doesn't join us atop the trash heap, there's no one else coming. And we have no hope. And just as he warns his friends, we too need to be warned, don't we? That if we bear false witness and we put forth an unlivable theology and we speak of God in ways that simplify him and make him unbiblical to suit our neurosis, we will taste of judgment. Remember, I am worthy of double. And I get to get up here every week and worry about messing it up. I get to wonder how you have heard me. That's sometimes how it goes. I've had people come up and say, man, I loved it when you talked about MacGyver. I have never talked about MacGyver, I can assure you. Great show. Just never talked about it in a sermon. But that happens sometimes. I don't know, where, where does that come in? That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not going to bring MacGyver to your mind if I didn't say it. That's weird. But it happens. And so I'm, I'm not just worried about what I'm saying. I'm also concerned about what you're hearing. And I don't oftentimes get the benefit of knowing I don't know what you hear sometimes, but that concerns me because I'm somehow responsible. And you too ought to be concerned with what you know about God and what you put forth in your life and what you teach your children or don't teach your children because you too are responsible. We should be careful with how we speak of the Lord our God and ensure that it is biblical and that we're doing it in community and we're helping to build one another up instead of break each other with our words. We need to be comforters, not lousy comforters, as Job is going to call his friends. Listen to what John Hartley says of this particular aspect of Job. He says, in this passage, Job is expressing a genuine faith, for he makes an unconditional affirmation about God's commitment to him against all circumstantial evidence to the contrary. Only by pure faith can a person believe in God's justice amidst suffering, assured within his heart that out of his sorrow, God will restore his honor. Did you hear how highly John Hartley spoke of Job's faith? And Job would say, I'm just, I got nothing left. This isn't a, I'm not expositing something grand. I just have nothing left. And would that we would recognize on a more regular basis that we have nothing more. We have been given the single greatest gift of all by our heavenly Father who grants us Christ, right? 
who recognizes we were separated from him and loved us so much that he says, yes, in fact, your redeemer lives and he will join you not atop the trash heap, but on the cross where he will take everything that you've endured on the trash heap. Past, present, and future. Some of you should be concerned with a line from one of the songs that we just sang this morning because it said that you would sin no more. John says something like that in 1 John. That's why we don't preach about it because you get tangled up in it so quick. But if you are in Christ, did you, do you know that even the mistakes you make in this life, they don't have the final say between the now and the not yet? Does that not set you free to worship, to know that actually you don't sin anymore? You make mistakes, and it looks like sins from the past, yes, but they don't come before the throne. Christ does on your behalf. As Colossians 3 would tell us, your life is now hidden with him on high. Look to him, quit looking to the earth. Did I just say that you will live perfect lives? Let me make sure everybody hears me. I didn't say anything about MacGyver, and I didn't say you were gonna be perfect. I did say something about MacGyver, but not in the way you think. You are not going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is your sin defines you no longer. Amen. You are free to worship. You are free to love. You are free to care for your neighbor in ways that you neurotically could never do when worried about your sin. Praise God. Praise God that he gives us the Redeemer who lives. Praise God that he gives us a table to remind us that the Redeemer lives and he's coming again and he's making intercession for us even this morning. Those of you who are struggling here today, know Christ is leaning across the throne and he is calling out for you. And the spirit is moving at his behest for your good in ways that you can't understand, in ways that are beyond our way of thinking. He is making things happen that may not show up for years. But hopefully you will remember when it does. Praise God that he reminds us that he loves us. What do we learn from Job 19? We learn that even our friends can break us with words sometimes. We learn that even those closest to us can harm us and tear us apart. Second, that we may be stripped of all comfort, leaving us to feel like we are a total stranger in this world. But third, our ultimate hope is in God as the just redeemer who will meet us in our suffering, who meets us in our suffering in Christ. Listen to what David Atkinson says in his commentary, The Message of Job. He says, though the full Christian meaning, which the words I know that my redeemer lives, hold for us today were merely a glimmer of first light before the dawn for Job. The God in whom he trusts is the God made known to us in Jesus as the kinsman redeemer and vindicator of those who trust him. How marvelous that Job could have said so much knowing so little. What a rebuke to some of us who know so much more of God than Job ever did and yet we trust him. So little.